When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. The opening of this passage may seem like a throwaway line to you, but it is not. When they had finished breakfast. This author wants you to know what the author of Matthew and Luke and the letters of Paul want you to know, and that is that those who spoke of the resurrection were not seeing a ghost. This was not an apparition. This was not a hallucination. They go to great lengths to point out to you that though Jesus had been changed, he could appear behind locked doors. He could move from one locale to the other without anyone's having seen him on the road. But he was the one crucified. Thomas, do you need to touch me? See my hands, see my feet, see my side. Do you have anything to eat? We have some leftover fish. Let me have some. Up at the Sea of Galilee, they had been fishing all night. As they approached the beach, they saw the Lord. He asked, have you any fish? We have fish. And when they had finished breakfast, implication is he cooked for them, prepared breakfast for them, ate with them. We wish we could know more. Paul wished he could have known more. He said, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Trust, these writers say. The resurrection is real. Paul would say, as surely as you have borne the image of the physical and you've had a physical body you shall also be given one that is incorruptible, a resurrection body. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. We will know him. He will know us. We believe we will know each other. Let's look at this story. This story is about saying things three times. I've told you the significance in Jesus' times, in biblical times, of people saying something three times. It was their understanding that one might say something out of a fit of passion or anger once or twice and not really mean it. I mean, if the moon is right and the candlelight is right and one's had a little glass of wine, perhaps one would say, I love you, and the next morning not mean that. Or a child might scream at a parent, I hate you, and be so sorry moments later. But if you said something three times, 
I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. The woman in a man's world was supposed to pack up and go. In our wedding ceremonies, we still give brides and grooms three opportunities. Will you have this man to be your, your husband? Will you have this woman to be your wife? I will. Will you hold her hand now? I want you to repeat after me. The vows are the second time. And I tell those I'm counseling before I marry them, there comes a third time. That's with the ring. To give and receive the ring, it's not too late to say, wait, I don't want to do this. But if you say it three times, then the minister says, because you and I have heard this and this and this, by the powers vested in me by the United Methodist Church and the state of Oklahoma, I announce your husband and wife. Three times. Peter knows the significance. Jesus knows the significance. So notice, three times the question asked, three times answer given, three times a commissioning. Let's start with the question. Simon, son of John. Now this author knows that Jesus has been calling Simon Peter. It says, Jesus spoke to Simon Peter. Simon, son of John. We know where Jesus gave him that name. It was up at Caesarea Philippi, where the beautiful spring waters come bubbling out of the earth, thousands of gallons creating a beautiful stream that forms the Jordan River, that creates the Sea of Galilee, that flows southward into the Dead Sea. It was there that Jesus asked, Who do the people think I am? Some say, You're John the baptizer, come back from the dead. Really? Some Elijah, some a great prophet. Who do you say I am? Simon, son of John, said, You are the Messiah of God. And Jesus said, Bless you, Simon. Flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, I'm not going to call you Simon, son of John, anymore. I'm going to call you Petros, Peter, the rock. Upon this rock I will build my church. And now he says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, and the second time, he said, Simon, son of John. And the third time, he said, Simon, son of John. Something happened to the rock. At the house of Caiaphas, he was asked, weren't you with him? No. You look like a Galilean. Are you sure you're not one of his disciples? I'm not. Are you sure? You did not come with him from Galilee. I never knew him. And the rooster crowed. Remember? Yeah. Something's happened. The rock didn't act like the rock. The rock folded, collapsed, crumbled. We're back to square one. Simon, son of John... A new adaptation of a play is on Broadway right now called The House of Blue Leaves. It's one of John Guari's plays. It was first staged on Broadway back in the mid-'80s. Ben Stiller played the role of a teenage boy. Now he's old enough to play the father. The reviews I've read said Edie Falco's the real star. 
Those of you who watch The Sopranos remember Edie Falco. And in this play, she gets to play the role of a schizophrenic. So actors tend to like those kinds of roles. She does it well, according to the reviewers. Uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh plays the role of a beautiful young woman who lives in an apartment downstairs. Well, Ben Stiller's character is a songwriter. He just never sells any of his songs, so he works at the zoo to support himself and his family. With a schizophrenic wife, a very ill wife, eventually there's an affair with the young, beautiful woman downstairs. The son is a really mixed-up kid, the one Ben Stiller played 25 years ago. He dreams of assassinating somebody to become somebody. Terry Treachout is a reviewer for the Wall Street Journal, and he had this line that stood out to me. These people have so messed up their lives, there is no way they can write themselves. Guess what? So had Simon. So messed things up, there was no way he could write his own ship. Number two. So it hurt him. It hurt him, the writer says, that the Lord asked him three times, Do you love me? He remembered. You know, David Brooks, that name familiar to you, he's a writer for the New York Times, but he writes out of the Washington, D.C. Bureau for the Times. He's on television occasionally when the president makes an address, like State of the Union. He may be hired by one of the networks to give his impression. What do you think the president really said, or what did the president really mean when he said that? But now he's written a new book called The Social Animal, and he talks about how humans are in desperate need to be connected to each other. His wife said in one interview that, that I read, his wife said, for David to write about intimacy is like expecting Mahatma Gandhi to write about gluttony, she said. And he says, okay, I'm a writer. I'm not the most personable guy in the world, but I've discovered that human beings need each other. We are social animals. It seems to me that what David is trying to say in the book is something similar to what transactional analysts were writing nearly 40 years ago. Remember their writings? They said, every time one human being comes near another, a transaction takes place. I mean, it may be two people who just walk past each other. But the fact that they walked past each other with nothing happening meant something happened. It can be someone who's checking out your groceries at the supermarket. She's friendly, he's kind, not helpful, distracted. There was a transaction. And what these behavioral scientists went on to say is that we not only store up in the computer what happened, we store up how we felt about what happened. That's the reason a 60-year-old man can start to tell you about his high school football coach and tear up. Because he not only remembers what happened when he was 17 and scared to death before this all-important football game, but what the coach said to him and what he felt when he heard it. What did you feel when your mother, when your father, 
when your coach, when your teacher. We remember not only what happened, we remember how we felt. Simon would have remembered how he felt at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said, Bless you! And how he felt that early morning at the house of Caiaphas when the rooster crowed. When you go to Caesarea Philippi, where we were again two months ago, there's no statue to Simon Peter where he said, You are the Messiah! But you go to Caiaphas' house, there's a bronze statue of Simon and the rooster. And Mark says... When Peter heard the rooster crow, he wept bitterly. He remembers how that felt. And so when Jesus asked him and asked him and asked him, it hurts. It hurts him deeply. Number three. Jesus is saying to Simon, I'm not through with you. I've got work for you to do. I cannot afford for you to break and run. I've got work for you to do. And here the writer changes the word slightly. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. There's slightly different ways of expressing it. But the scholars I read this week said, the key word here is my. My sheep? The prophets in the Hebrew scriptures said the kings had made such a mess of being Israel's shepherds. They had not led the sheep by still waters. They had not led them in green, wonderful grass. They had not protected them from enemies. They had not been there for them in the darkest valleys like death. So one day God said, I will come and shepherd my own people. I will be their shepherd and they will be my sheep. And John's gospel has identified Jesus as the paschal lamb, the lamb of Passover, but also the shepherd of the sheep. The good shepherd, he said, does not flee when the enemy comes. The hireling will break and run, but not the one to whom the sheep belongs. So Jesus says three times, my sheep, my lambs, my sheep. Okay, I'm counting on you, Peter to take over the work that I've begun here. Counting on you. Good Friday was the end of a, a long week for us at the church. The end of Lent. Many of us had been reading a devotional book together written by members of our own church and staff. I have a couple of other devotional books that I read uh, as a part of my own spiritual journey texts that are appropriate to the season. We went through Palm Sunday together, then Monday, Thursday, then Good Friday. Friday afternoon, things got really quiet in the downtown of Tulsa, quiet around the church after the noon service was over. I was up in the office going over that Easter sermon, tweaking it every way I knew how. And then I went to work out a little while, then Gail and I went to eat in Utica Square. When we got through with our meal, and we got back in the car. We noticed that the menorah uh, at Temple Israel, the flames were coming out. And Gail said, why don't we go to the temple? Why don't we worship at the temple tonight? I said, okay, fine. So I pulled into the parking lot and walked up to a greeter at the door. And he recognized me and said, well, hi, Dr. Briggs. 
I said, service at 7.30 or 8? And he said, 7.30, about 15 minutes. Come on in. Pick out your favorite seat. I said, Shabbat Shalom. He said, thank you very much. Shabbat Shalom to you as well. I asked, has Passover gone well? He said, yes, very well. I've been surrounded by family whom I love. We've done all the right things, I think. Now we're in temple on Friday night. And tomorrow night, he said, I'll watch the Ten Commandments. I said, really? And he said, oh, yes, every year they put on Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments to end Passover. I've seen it so many times, he said. We watch it every year with my family. When the rabbi says Moses, I see Charlton Heston. He says Pharaoh, I see Yule Brenner. <laughs> Saturday night, I'm still tweaking the sermon in my heart. I turn on the Ten Commandments. And I watched it. Moses. Pharaoh. That whole movie. I watched the whole thing again. Cecil B. DeMille made other movies. By the time he made the Ten Commandments, he was an older man. Thirty years before, he had made a movie called The King of Kings. The story of Jesus. That movie went round the world in the 1920s. There was a young man in what became Gdansk, Danzig at the time, who went to see that movie. The next day, went to see the Lutheran pastor and said, I felt something special at the movie theater last night. I think God's calling me to be a preacher. The pastor took him seriously, told him what he should do next. And he went to college went to seminary, became a Lutheran preacher. William Volner was his name, William Volner. By the time 1939 came along, he was pastor of a large Lutheran church in Prague, Czechoslovakia. The Nazis came. And he felt led to shelter Jews, specifically Jewish children. They tried to pass the word through an underground system we will do our best to take care of your children. One of the physicians in his church and his wife volunteered their home, tried to build secret places where they could hide Jewish children. Someone told on them they were taken to Auschwitz. The wife was killed, gassed, almost immediately. The husband was put on a work detail, this physician. When people would ask him, what are you doing here? I was doing what I believe Jesus told me to do, he said. And one day, an officer heard him say that to someone, grabbed him by the hair of his head and smashed his head again and again and again into a wall until the doctor slumped down at the base and the guard said, well, now you look more like your Jesus. And the doctor said, I pray so a little more every day and he died witnesses told his story they told the story and William Volner and his congregation saved more than 350 Jewish children not enough but 350 who would otherwise not have survived I have work for you to do 
I want you to tend my sheep. I'm not giving up on you. Number four. The question. Now, scholars I read this week, very good scholars, like Dr. Raymond Brown from Yale says, now don't make any big deal about the differences in the word love here. But John in his gospel uses these two words, philios and agape, back and forth, back and forth. But there's a group of British scholars, a group of them, who believe there is some significance here because of the way the story is told. Jesus asked Peter, do you agape me? Filiose, agape me, filiose, filios me, filiose. Which means what? Eros is a Greek word meaning physical attraction. Someone finds a woman beautiful, someone finds a man handsome. Filios, we have in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly or sisterly love. It's friendship. Girls in a sorority, guys in a fraternity, graduates of OSU, graduates of OU. People who have something in common like each other. Agape is a different word. Will you take yourself out of the center and put me in? Will you put yourself out for my well-being? Really put yourself out for my well-being? Jesus asked, do you have agape for me? I have filios for you. Agape for me? I have filios for you. Do you really have filios for me? I have filios for you. Or, will you really put yourself out of center and let me be center, Peter? I'll be your friend. Will you take yourself out of the center and let me be sinner? I'll be your friend. Will you really be my friend? Lord, you know everything. You know, I'll really be your friend. Okay, we'll start there. Take care of my sheep.